It is summer 1978, and D.C. is hanging by a thread. A few years earlier, Marvel swept past the venerable publisher. The company recently launched a big comeback it dubbed the DC Explosion. Lots of new titles, fresh creative teams. But the explosion quickly becomes an implosion. Due to sluggish sales, DC suddenly axes 40% of its titles and lays off a huge portion of its staff. A dark cloud settles over the office. But there's hope. And it comes in an unlikely form, a big-budget motion picture starring Superman. Rumors of the film had been circulating around DC's offices for years. There had been so many false starts and delays in production, many staffers doubt it will even happen. But it's finally real. And in December 1978, it's days from opening. A few weeks earlier, the DC staff had squeezed into the publisher's office. As they watch the trailer, they marvel at the epic tone and at how tall, dark, and handsome Christopher Reeve really looks the part of Superman. But to each other, they kept the conversation light, trying not to put too much stock in this one movie, daring not to hope that it would pull DC out of its two-decade decline. Today, the staff gathers in the DC offices at 75 Rockefeller Plaza, The halls are crowded with artists, writers, editors, freelancers, and even former employees who have driven hours to be there. There's a buzz in the air. The group walks a few blocks to the Lowe's Astor Plaza Theater in Times Square for a screening. They settle nervously into their seats. The lights go down and the crowd falls eerily silent. Most know how much is riding on the next 143 minutes. And after the movie is finished, and Superman has vanquished Lex Luthor, the lights come up and a sense of relief and excitement sweeps through the hometown crowd. They don't know it yet, but they've just been one of the first audiences to witness the dawn of the superhero movie. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. Chances are, if you're a fan of Marvel and DC these days, you may have never even read a comic book. You probably watch these superheroes and their mega-budget adventures on movie screens around the world— A $7 box of popcorn and a $5 soda on your lap, and you're good to go. Well, in our last episode, we saw how Marvel exploded out of the 1960s, finally overtaking its longtime rival DC in sales in 1972. Marvel, on the strength of its exciting new characters and fresh storytelling approach, powered ahead. And DC, well, DC stumbled. But what will soon become clear is that the newsstand dollars these two foes have been scrapping and clawing for over the decades are peanuts. The real money lies in motion pictures. You're listening to Episode 5, Big Screen Heroes. The men who founded both DC and Marvel understood the value of their characters to movies and television. From the company's earliest years, both tried to interest Hollywood in their superheroes sometimes with success. DC's Superman had a radio show and an Art Deco-drenched cartoon in the early 40s. 
Faster than an airplane. More powerful than a locomotive. Impervious to bullets. Up in the sky, look. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Other times, with less success. Marvel's Captain America appeared in a schlocky 1944 serial from a B-movie studio nicknamed Repulsive Pictures. Other superhero projects appeared sporadically in the subsequent years, but they lacked one important element. Respect. See, comic books were considered purely the domain of children and intellectually immature adults back in the day. They were good for cartoons or campy wink-wink television, like the 1966 Batman TV series. But the idea that a comic book character could be treated seriously on TV, or the silver screen for that matter, was not even something to be entertained. That is, until Superman comes along. The movie version of Superman starts inauspiciously enough with a father and son producing team. Alexander Salkind grew up in Berlin, then moved to France during World War II. He supposedly knew every banker in Europe and could be a shark when it came to squeezing every last dollar out of a movie for himself, earning him enemies over the years. His son Ilya made his name with his father on a 1974 adaptation of The Three Musketeers. Ilya is walking through Paris when he spots a billboard for a Zorro movie. The poster gets him thinking about what other costumed heroes could be brought to the screen. One name immediately springs to mind, Superman. But when he brings the idea to his father, Alexander has a question few others on Earth would have. Who's Superman? Ilya explains, but the elder Salkind is skeptical. He eventually relents, and they option the rights to the character for $850,000. To write the script, the producers first turned to Mario Puzo, his novel, The Godfather, had recently been made into an Oscar-winning film. But when it comes to Superman, Puzo gives DC a script they could definitely refuse. He turns Clark Kent from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter, and for some reason flips the villain's name from Lex Luthor to Luther Lux. He also injects cringe-worthy humor. In one scene, Superman goes looking for the ball Luther. Instead, he finds the man who plays a popular television detective character, Kojak, who sucks on a lollipop and drops his catchphrase, Who loves you, baby? Well, the DC people are horrified. Puzo later walks away. More suitable writers are eventually hired, and more importantly, a suitable director, Richard Donner. He'd recently helmed the horror hit, The Omen. For Superman... Richard Donner has a vision. No camp, no funny stuff. Just because the main character has fantastic powers and wears tights doesn't mean this story can't be grounded. In his office, the director hangs a sign reading, Verisimilitude, Donner explains. Verisimilitude, it's a word that refers to being real. Not realistic, yes, there is a difference. But real. It's a constant reminder to ourselves that if we give in to the temptation to parody Superman... We'd just be fooling ourselves. Make Superman real. It would ultimately prove to be the key to the film's success and a reliable template for future comic book adaptations. Well, at the time, few others believed. Top Hollywood actors pass on the title role. 
Paul Newman thinks the whole thing's ridiculous. Burt Reynolds finds the character too square. Robert Redford worries the part would be too demanding. The Salkins eventually cast a handsome but largely unknown soap opera actor named Christopher Reeve in the role. They pay him the modest sum of $250,000. Compared to the nearly $4 million Marlon Brando raked in for playing Superman's birth father Jor-El in a single scene, well, that's just peanuts. When the movie premieres at Christmas time in 1978, the excitement that the DC staff feels at the New York preview screening is shared by audiences. Critics like it, and the movie cleans up at the box office. The story covers Superman's familiar origin. A baby rockets to the Earth from a dying planet. A nice, corn-fed Midwestern couple adopt him. He soon discovers that he has amazing abilities. As an adult, he moves to the big city and adopts a secret identity as a mild-mannered newspaper reporter, ducking into telephone booths. Remember those? Yeah, that's how he sneaks into his costume when the world needs him. When the movie hits the screen, the Washington Post raves that it's the simple, earthbound quality of the film that makes this comic book fantasy soar. Superman stays true to his charming comic book persona. He's earnest, polite, and decent to a fault. Yet the film wins over audiences with its sly touches of humor, as well as its impressive special effects that realistically portray the hero streaking through the skies above Metropolis. Over at Marvel, Superman's success disheartens Stan Lee. He'd been fruitlessly trying for years to get anyone in Hollywood to take his costumed heroes seriously, and now DC has beaten him to the punch. The first Superman movie had a lot of the Marvel pacing, and yet they never had that kind of stuff in the Superman books. I used to figure if we ever did Spider-Man the right way, the way the books have done him, people would think we were imitating Superman. You can imagine the way that makes me feel. Lee would have to wait decades for that Spider-Man movie. Despite its success, Superman does not open the floodgates to other comic book adaptations. Hollywood considers the film a one-off success and still thinks that mass audiences will never really embrace serious superhero flicks. Changing that perception will take many more years, and it will begin with a would-be producer named Michael Uslan. Uslan is a hardcore comic book fan and occasional DC writer. It's been his dream to bring another of DC's characters to the big screen, Batman, and he wants to treat the character in a serious way, completely unlike the goofy 1966 TV series. So in 1979, Uslan just 27 years old, goes to see DC's president, Saul Harrison. Saul, I want to buy the rights to Batman. I want to do a dark and serious version that shows the whole world he is not that pow, zap, wham, potbelly, funny guy from TV. Look, Michael, please don't do this. I, I don't want to see you lose your money. People are laughing at Batman, and, th and that just kills me. Look, since Batman went off the air on TV... He's as dead as a dodo. Nobody's interested in him anymore. Saul, Saul, if I do it in a dark and serious way, it'll be like a new character. Nobody's seen anything like it. <sighs> I can't talk you out of this? No. All right, Schmoodle, you got it. Yuslan and a partner acquire the Batman rights on October 3rd, 1979. 
He shops the movie around and for years gets doors slammed in his face at every Hollywood studio. Studio honchos just don't get the appeal of these comic book heroes. One clueless exec passes on the film because the recent adaptation of Little Orphan Annie flopped. When Yuslan asks what that had to do with Batman, the executive replies, They're both out of the funny pages. It'll take a decade before Batman finally hits screens. The 1989 movie, starring Michael Keaton and directed by Tim Burton, accomplishes Yuslan's goal. It returns Batman to his Dark Knight roots. The movie is a hit and creates a more somber version of Batman that will thrive on screen for decades. The campy Batman of the 1960s TV series is a memory. The 1989 Batman smashes box office records, but what catches the attention of the studios even more are the many millions it earns from merchandise sales. That really opens their eyes to the value of superheroes in movies. It's Batman, like you've never seen him before. Wow. Hey, Joker, a battery surprise! Missed me, Batman. That jet wings out fire! I never run out of tricks. You'll need them. Batman, the Dark Knight collection, each sold separately. Marvel can't compete with a cape crusader. It has licensed its characters often for bargain basement prices to D-list studios, and the result is even embarrassing to Stan Lee, who has always been Marvel's biggest hype man. He moved from New York to L.A. in 1980 specifically to court Hollywood, but years later, he remains frustrated that the very few Marvel projects that do get on screen fail to capture what makes the brand so innovative on the page. Marvel's most high-profile adaptation is 1986's Howard the Duck, a comedy about a talking duck. It's such a bomb, it allegedly leads to a fistfight between studio executives over who's to blame. Lee is especially disappointed in the lack of progress on a Spider-Man film that he has been trying to get off the ground seemingly forever. Speaking publicly in 1989, he has this to say. The Spider-Man movie has been the longest ongoing disaster you have ever heard of. The studio has had ten scripts done already, each one worse than the one before. Every year you'll read in the trades, Coming soon, Spider-Man, don't miss it. Miss it, please, until we get a good script. The worst of the Marvel movies is a clunky 1994 Fantastic Four adaptation made on a shoestring budget starring nobody actors. It's so wretched, Marvel buys up and destroys every copy. And if the Marvel faithful think what's happening in Hollywood is bad, what's going on back at comics publishing is far worse. It's dangerous when a new owner picks up a property he knows little about, but when he feels nothing but contempt for the product, well, that can push the company to the brink of collapse. Marvel's troubles begin with a man named Ron Perlman. He's a balding, cigar-smoking Wall Street titan who's worth millions, might make a good supervillain for one of their stories. But in fact, he cares nothing for comic books. He once confided to a business partner he literally couldn't read them, couldn't make sense of the panels and the captions. But he does love money, 
and after hearing how much merchandise money DC's Batman movie is raked in, Perlman targets Marvel. In 1989, he buys the company for $82.5 million. Then, Perlman sets out to rapaciously extract as many of those dollars out of Spider-Man, the X-Men, and the rest as he possibly can. He jacks up cover prices. He launches new titles, believing correctly that readers will buy multiple copies of every number one issue in the assumption that the comics will one day be worth a fortune. He goes on an ill-advised buying spree. He acquires a trading card company, a sticker company, and a magazine distributor, and puts all these expensive purchases on Marvel's balance sheet. Soon, Marvel is in debt to the tune of $700 million, and by 1993, comic book sales crash fast. The legions of speculators who had once buoyed Marvel's sales flee. They realize these comics won't even be worth their cover price. Circulation tanks by 70%. Hundreds of comic stores across the country close their doors forever. Perlman issues junk bonds to pay Marvel's debt. According to reports, he's lining his own pockets with as much as $400 million. Marvel's investors and partners are getting restless. One such man is Ike Perlmutter. Perlmutter owns the toy company Toy Biz, in which Marvel is a partner. He's an Israeli war veteran, mysterious, rarely photographed. He's also a notorious penny pincher. He's worth millions, but staffers tell stories of him personally going through their trash to rescue discarded paper clips. His fortunes are tied to Marvel, so when the superhero publisher continues sinking through 1995, Perlmutter pays a visit to Perlman to issue a warning. The two meet at Perlman's opulent Venetian-style townhouse on New York's ritzy Upper East Side. You have a serious problem with Marvel. Nobody's going to tell you, but I'll tell you, I see a bankruptcy. How can you say that? What do you think is going so wrong? Ron... You have to start doing things with the Marvel characters. You have to make movies and that kind of thing so people talk about Marvel. Perlman has been hesitant to risk money on films. To change Perlman's mind, Perlmutter summons his toy biz partner, Avi Arad, to the townhouse. Arad, like Perlmutter, is Israeli. He grew up reading comics in Hebrew. Sit down, Avi. Ron... I think we can succeed with movies. You have to realize what a gem, what a treasure chest you own with these characters. They are part of a truly original American art form, like jazz. There are so many Americans who care about them. Perlman nods. He's listening. But he would not have much time to act on the advice. Soon, he's caught in an epic struggle with Marvel's bondholders for control of the company. The opposition is led by corporate raider Carl Icahn. You might remember him from our Netflix vs. Blockbuster series. Icahn wants control of the company, and he has his own plan for pulling it out of the red. He accuses Perlman of reaping a profit for himself at the expense of Marvel's investors. The battle between Perlman and Icahn devolves into name-calling and threats. In December 1996... Perlman, crushed beneath a mountain of debt and desperate to fend off his challenger, files for bankruptcy. The news shocks comic fans. Suddenly, Marvel, the company that has fueled imaginations for decades, is revealed to be nothing more than a cold profit machine. Marvel 
hits rock bottom. It's bankrupt, bleeding money, and has lost the trust of its loyal fan base. The day before the bankruptcy is announced, Marvel's shares close at a measly $2.38. That's less than the price of two of their comics. Perlman's bankruptcy filing is procedural, really, a last-ditch effort to keep control of Marvel, and it doesn't work. After two years of exceedingly complicated legal wrangling, both he and Icon are ousted. So in 1998, Marvel ends up in the hands of the Toy Biz owners, Ike Perlmutter and Avi Arad. There are new sheriffs in town, and they are bullish on what films can do for Marvel. It's not like Marvel characters aren't making it to the big screen at all. Vampire Hunter Blade, starring Wesley Snipes, hits theaters in 1998, and it's a surprise hit. X-Men follows in 2000. Spider-Man in 2002. Both are massive moneymakers, just not for Marvel. And that is the problem. You see, Marvel's modus operandi has been to license its characters to studios, basically outsourcing the making of films. For Blade, it reportedly reaped just $25,000. So in 2003, along comes David Mizell. He's a Harvard-educated Hollywood type who's got an idea. What if? What if Marvel produces its own films? That way, they'll control every aspect, keep them truer to their comic book origins, and most important, allow the company to keep more of the profit. Mizell helped strike a financing deal with bank Merrill Lynch. Marvel will get $525 million to finance its own films. But there's a catch, of course. Isn't there always with banks? In exchange for the loan, Marvel will have to put up for collateral the rights to 10 characters pretty much the only decent characters it hasn't already licensed to other studios. This list includes Captain America, Ant-Man, Black Panther, and Doctor Strange, among others. The financial press sneers. The general public has barely heard of many of these characters. But for Marvel, the risk is substantial. You see, if Marvel defaults, the bank gains the rights to these crucial characters... Everything is riding on what happens next. And what happens next will not only turn the once-bankrupt entity into a billion-dollar powerhouse, it will establish Marvel as one of the most powerful forces in pop culture. And it begins with a simple idea, and oddly enough, one borrowed from a comic book. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. And make sure you support our show by supporting our sponsors. If you like what you've heard, we'd love for you to give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe to it. And feel free to share your thoughts about the show or suggest some future Business Wars you'd like to hear by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. I'm your host, David Brown. Reed Tucker, author of Slugfest, Inside the Epic 50-Year Battle Between Marvel and DC, wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Sound design by Bay Area Sound. Our show's executive producer is Marshall Louie, and it was created by Hernan Lopez for Wondery. <laughs>